This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, in our final programme for 2019, Jeremy Rose has a fascinating chat with a former journalist turned novelist who's now also in the inner circle of national intelligence, where a bit of inside knowledge on how the media work will come in handy, you'd think, as it does for his thrillers. Also, we take a look at a couple of political personalities who proved the media wrong in 2019, and as a new summer silly season looms, we look back at the unexpected stars of the last one. Where are you going home? But first, a political ploy to spark a cycle of outrage this week was called out on Talkback Radio. Every kid deserves the chance to get into sports. But sadly, one in eight kids feel excluded from it because they don't have the kit. That's why we're asking you to dig into your cupboards and garages to find any sports gear and donate it at your nearest purple locker. That was an advert for a new charitable initiative urging Kiwis to put spare sports gear for kids who can't afford their own at Christmas time into lockers in Cadbury's colour purple. Search Cadbury Donate Your Kit. Cadbury. There's a glass and a half in everyone. And that ad's been running a lot on talk radio station News Talk ZB lately. And who hearing that wouldn't want to back Kiwi kids to get out there and do a nice healthy sport? Unless perhaps it's cycling. Mike, I have just seen a cyclist riding in the middle of the car lane on St. Asaph Street in Christchurch next to the gold-plated separated cycleway. The cyclist is getting and giving the finger. <laughs> Mike Yardley there filling in on News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking breakfast last Monday with a bit of audience feedback. But what triggered that particular burst of talk radio road rage from ZB listeners in the first place? Well, it was the National Party last weekend sending out signals to the news media that the rubber was about to meet the road for their new transport policy the following day. The National Party wants to repeal the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax and start a congestion charge instead. But to get the media's attention, they ceded the most clickworthy but trivial component of the policy on social media, fining cyclists for failing to use cycle lanes where they exist because, according to transport spokesperson Chris Bishop, that's what they do in the cyclocentric Netherlands. And when Cycle Action Network advocate Patrick Morgan told Mike Yardley that they have that law in the Netherlands because the cycle system there is so good and the police there don't enforce it anyway, Mike Yardley said his listeners didn't like that. Oh my goodness, Mike. Listening to that cycle guy Patrick with you, I nearly drove off the road. Most of the Dutch cycleways are shared. That man is talking out of his lycra-laden tush. Thank you. Well, cyclists probably wouldn't mind drivers like that driving off the road and staying there, but it's often been a topic that gets listeners on talk radio reaching for the insults and the abuse. Even before the official transport policy launch on Monday, no one actually seemed to believe that the cycle sanction was either significant or serious stuff, and it left Wallace Chapman asking this on RNZ's afternoon panel. You know, fair play to Chris Bishop. He's doing. A, he's making a good fist of the transport portfolio for National in terms of keeping these sorts of well, things. He said in the he news. said he's a big cycling fan. So why would he roll out a policy like this if he's a big cycling advocate? Because he's already gotten six or seven minutes on the panel for it. <laughs> so. And the panel guest there, Ben Thomas, who's a political lobbyist in high demand in the media as a pundit, was spot on there. And there were a couple more minutes on that topic as well in the panel, during which he added this. Maybe it's all a plan to have, you know, lower speed police chases as the 
cycle cycle cops <laughs> pedal after the hero. A bit of response, as you'd expect. That's not a bad idea. And if they do, they could make one of those fly-on-the-wall reality TV shows about it. They could even call it Bike Force Raptor. But in drive time on Monday on ZB, Andrew Dickens was well aware of the attempted media manipulation that was going on here. You know, today's talkback was great entertainment as the silly season got underway a week early. Anti-phone lines, what do you do? Well, you can always bank on the old cyclist versus motorist debate. And Chris Bishop laid down the clickbait yesterday on Sunday. Well, great entertainment was stretching it a bit, but the morning talkback on ZB that day did turn out to be pretty interesting. Morning host Kerry McIver kicked it off like this. And just when you think you're going to be talking favourite Christmas carol or best Christmas cake recipe and the long, slow days and the lead-up before the Christmas holidays, along come National with an absolute blinder of a talkback topic. Stay in your cycle lane, mammals, or be fined. And while it sounded like she was sitting back there anticipating a flood of cranky car drivers to phone in a cascade of condemnation for their enemies on bikes, it didn't quite pan out that way. It's absolutely fantastic for awareness and cyclists. No, I don't know. I'm just hating on the hate, Kerry, this time of year. I think there are much more productive things to talk about. But I just think that, you know, there are some terrible motorists, obviously, who do take offence openly at cyclists, but I think generally we all respect them as long as they respect us. Nicely put. Thank you, Kevin. News Talk ZB, it's 9.29. Yes, indeed. Nicely put by Kevin there. And that was all just in the first 15 minutes on Kerry McIver's show. The talkback call of the mild intensified throughout the morning. A caller called Doreen called to tell Kerry that she's a reformed angry motorist who now respects the fast cyclists. I think a lot of these callers, particularly motorists coming through, have a little bit of intolerance as well. Mm. I used to feel like that. And Doreen told Kerry McIver she even respects the slow ones. It's not illegal to ride on the road. No, There's it's no not. speed limit on, on cyclists. There's literal, which I like because I'm tired of legislation after legislation. I'm tired of people who call out, oh, there should be a law against it. Yeah, slow cyclists frustrate me at times too, but I would rather hang back a bit and be safe and not hit them and face the consequences. And I just wish people would stop and think sometimes about what... It is really like, and I've had really had a guts full of motorists here in Auckland. They are awful. After that, another caller, who called himself a former redneck on the road, attacked National's proposal to find cyclists like this. Um, I used to be a bit of a redneck and, you know, buddy cyclists, and you know, I've, uh, I've grown up a bit since, since then. But small fry, we have so many bigger issues, so I suppose this is why National won't have a show in the next election, because they come up with... Uh, these trivial things. He's on the mark. Obviously, a lot of people have a lot of anger towards it. And I thought we were quite a laid-back sort of race. No, but we've turned into quite an angry bunch, really. There is a, a, an undercurrent of anger. Absolutely, I agree. And that criticism was echoed by News Talk ZB host Tim Dower, who reckoned that national stunt could backfire. They are not going to win it by coming down hard on cyclists and demanding new laws uh, to force cyclists to stay in dedicated lanes. This is Chris Bishop yesterday. He's got a point. He knows it'll push buttons, but is it really the big transport issue in New Zealand right now? I don't think so. Earlier on News Talk ZB, Kerry McIver had told that caller Doreen this. There is a real um, 
intolerance towards cyclists, and I don't know where that's come from. Where does that anger come from? Well, we can help Kerry with that. A fair bit of it has come from hosts at News Talk ZB, including herself occasionally, as she acknowledged on the air on Monday. And here's the most vocal of them at News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking, in one of many outbursts on the topic last year. So here was the deal. Uh, you know I hate public transport, I hate buses, I hate cycle lanes, I hate trains. Uh, but what I hate the Onzo bikes, I hate bikes, I hate people on bikes. Now, Mike Hosking is far from a lone voice at the station in criticising both the construction and the cost of cycleways. And at around the same time last year, Mike Hosking told his listeners this. We said cycleways aren't the future, don't get used, cost a fortune. Inconvenience the rest of us, i.e. those of us in a car. For those of us who are guided through life by common sense, I have a growing feeling we are starting to win this particular battle. But the latest stats from Auckland seem to show that the tide is actually turning the other way. And so is ZB host Kerry McIver, who told her listeners last Monday she wasn't just going to talk about bikes on the air in her work, she was going to ride a bike to work in 2020. Because it makes sense. I'm only a few k's away. It's just that little bit too far to walk, but it's the perfect, perfect distance to bike. And I will be using the cycle lanes that have been built there. And that will put me at odds with cyclists who are blatting along, trying to get their heart rates up and trying to go as fast as they possibly can. And that will also put her at odds with fellow ZB hosts like Mike Hosking and politicians who plan on provoking motorists into a cycle of outrage but might instead find an outbreak of goodwill to all men and women and kids sharing the roads on bikes. Dan Eaton is a former national affairs editor of the Press newspaper and a former foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And he's also the author of two spy novels, the latest of which features a New Zealand reporter caught up in conflict and espionage overseas. And Dan Eaton has just taken up a senior position in New Zealand's intelligence community. He's the new Director of National Security Policy at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, where inside knowledge of how the media work might come in handy, you'd think. Jeremy Rose sat down with Dan Eaton recently to talk about the new thriller, modern journalism, and how intelligence and the defence establishment interacts with the media these days and sometimes comes into conflict with them. But first, Jeremy asked Dan to read an extract from his latest book, No White Lies. In the distance, a man in a wooden dugout pulls in a fishing net. Beads of water glisten on the fine mesh in the dying light. A sudden flutter as a fish drops back into the brown water, the one that got away. The American breaks the silence. A writer has a lot of passports, you know, an excuse to be almost anywhere at any time. That can be very useful. I turn to face him again, eyebrows raised. Public affairs, you say? I thought I knew all the guys in public affairs. Look, I think we can help each other out here, he smiles and nods. Eyes and ears, that sort of thing. A conversation here and there about what you've seen or heard. I let the silence sit there for a while. And in return... A chance to serve, he grins. You're an American. Half, I correct him. My old man. Not the half I'm proud of. My mother was a Maori. A New Zealander. I'm not sure why I'm telling him this. Looking at my life, it would be hard to argue I've shown much pride in that side either. I'm about as dislocated as it's possible to be from the culture and identity of my ancestors. Maori. He repeats the word as if trying it out for the first time. Great warriors, Maori. 
The comment irritates me, but I say nothing. The expression on his face is hard to decipher. It could be admiration, or just mild interest, or surprise, as if to say I'd never have guessed. We can make you popular with your editors. Wherever you are in the world, a foreign correspondent with ties to the company has a much better chance than his competitors of getting the good stories. So, Dan, that was an extract from your latest book, No White Lies. With any novel, it's inevitable that readers will wonder if there's an autobiographical element. We know that the protagonist, Will McCormick, is a journalist, a former foreign correspondent, a Pulitzer Prize winner responsible at least for one death, and a journalist who helped legitimise a war. Any crossover at all? So, it's a good question. <laughs> um, no, so I'm, I, I guess, I mean, make it clear from the start, I'm a novelist that pulls uh, uh, things out of my imagination and puts them on the page. But, it, you know, it might help, I think, to, to put that little, uh, that little bit of the book in context. So it's, you know, my main character, Will McCormick. Um, he's working as a journalist in Cambodia, Tick. I worked as a journalist in Cambodia. I was, I was bureau chief for Agence France Presse there. He's been struggling to cover a story because nobody at the U.S. Embassy will talk to him, Tick, being there. The rest is fiction. I, I did cover the particular event that, he, that, you know, that he's covering in the story. But the scene where we pick it up there is he's at a party at a villa on the banks of the Mekong River, and he's out there on the deck looking out over the river. Once again, Tick, being there, but he meets Bill Bradley. And uh, Bill Bradley is his future CIA handler. Um, and Bill Bradley works uh, in, in uh, public affairs at the U.S. Embassy. That's, that's where we depart from reality. And in your experience, have you ever come across the CIA or any other foreign security branches who try and influence journalists like that, try to recruit journalists? So, you know, I guess I'd, I'd start again by saying that I'm speaking as a novelist here and, and somebody who reals, really pulls that fiction from my imagination, um, but I'm also an avid reader. Um, and so have journalists ever been co-opted as spies? Um, the short answer is absolutely yes. Uh, there's a long and storied history of it. Um, and back through the Cold War, World War Two, World War One, and, and back beyond probably to the dawn of journalism and the dawn of, of uh, the industry of spying, um, and books have been written about it, movies have been made, so I don't really need to, you know, um, go into those in too much detail. But the the, the guy Will in my novel, um, you know, he's he's symptomatic, or he's a he's a um, a character that ex- that you know exists in a lot of people. And over the years, I think journalism has been perfect cover, um, an excuse to be anywhere at any time to collect information, to compile it and send it back to headquarters is, is perfect cover for spying. Um, but I think, you know... It, but, but in your it, experience, you haven't actually met anyone you think I, was a spy? I've never been approached by an intelligence agency, to my, <laughs> to my knowledge. And to, and to be honest, they must have been pretty subtle <laughs> if they had. So this might have been me thinking like, you know, you know living out the dream of, of uh, such an important journalist that they wanted to, to, to target this guy, so no. But, I, you know, one of the, I guess, one of the interesting points, I think, about um, the way the world's changing really rapidly in journalism is journalists don't have to just think about, is that somebody making an approach at me? They have to think really carefully about the environment in which they operate now. So I was reading the other day a really interesting piece from the New York Times published last year called When Spies Hack Journalism. And it really talks about how the concept of the leaker has come in lots of different 
forms over the years. Um, you know, if you think about Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks, or if you think about Edward Snowden and NSA, or you think about anonymous sources, you know, I don't even know who they are, but the Panama Papers, you've got this New York Times article that, that really perceives a new and different take on, on the style of large-scale leakers that's emerged. What they argue is that it's, it's the security service of some nation-states that are um, hacking troves of documents and leaking them to proxies who then release them to journalists. And so, you know, the best case of that is what happened with the US elections and the hacking of the Democrats by Russian intelligence back in, in 2016. I've thought a lot about what that would mean for journalism and the kind of journalism that I remember and the kind of journalism that you, Jeremy, would remember from, uh, you know, being brought up, going to journalism school and learning, you know, um, essentially the rules of the rules of the road, the rules of the trade. And, and if you find something that's authentic and newsworthy, you run it, right? But by those conventions in this new media environment, I think journalists are set up to be manipulated or co-opted willingly or otherwise. And so, you know, the question is, like, were those hundreds or maybe thousands of journalists who reported on the leak of the Hillary Clinton emails, had they become de facto servants of, of a foreign intelligence uh, regime? I think that they, you look back and you read that coverage and they reported some really true and important things, but they weren't leaked equivalent things from, from the opponents of, of Clinton and that. And so, you know, the tilt of the coverage was decided in Moscow in that particular case. And, and that would often be the case. I mean, when yeah. something is leaked, one of the first questions should always be, why is it being leaked? Exactly. But the listeners know that you're both an author and yeah. a former journalist, but you're also going to be the Director of National Security yeah. Policy at the Department of Prime yeah. Minister and Cabinet. Yeah. So you're thinking about this with two hats on. One is a former journalist who absolutely believed in publishing things that were in the public interest. Yeah. And as a journalist, you would have yeah. thought about the things which were of interest but possibly not absolutely. in the public interest. You're kind of on the other side of that fence now, mm. what would you do if you came across things which you thought were in the public interest but weren't in the interests of the Prime Minister's department or, yeah. or the Prime Minister and Cabinet? How, how are you going to navigate that? So, look, I, I, I don't want to go into hypotheticals, but I don't want to use that as an excuse not to tant the story, but, I, you know... In my experience so far, and I haven't gone to work uh, in this new role yet, but I haven't found myself in that situation. I've been a public servant for 10 years, and to be honest, I don't expect to, but we all know the concept of the whistleblower, don't we? A whistleblower is somebody who reports dishonest or illegal behaviour from within an organisation, and you know there are mechanisms to do this. So in New Zealand, we have the Protected Disclosures Act, but obviously there'll be times when you can't report internally, uh, you know, so we've also got the Ombudsman, um, or in cases of classified information, we've got the Inspector General of, of Security and Intelligence, and whistleblowers can be given certain legal protections under our system, certain situations where you can get, keep their identity confidential. So as a public servant, I know there are avenues uh, that I can go down, but I, I'd, I'd like to sort of make a, a point about conspiracies, which takes us back to my efforts to write novels, I guess, is that conspiracies really appeal to the human brain. And uh, conspiracies, have, they have an enormous draw, and that's why they're, they're the base for so many good novels, and that's why, as a novelist, I love them. Uh, but my experience, and having been uh, in the media for most of my career and in the public service for a good part of it, is that, you know, working in that security and intelligence 
sector, the people that I've worked with and the people I've come across are a lot like you and me. They're just like you and me. They're regular Kiwis, regular values. They go to work and they do the right thing day in and day out. You know, if you're a journalist and you're trying to connect the dots between a couple of juicy, you know, pieces of disparate, you know, sort of information that you've gotten hold of, err on the side of bureaucratic stuff-up or um, human error over grand conspiracy, uh, you know, as a novelist, we can let our imaginations run wild. In fact, if we don't, nobody's going to buy our books. Uh, but as journalists, I think we shouldn't. But we have seen mm. that the government and the defence establishment in New Zealand is quite often very keen to keep stories untold. You know, we've had the work of Nikki Haga mm. recently of the Stuff Investigation Team mm. looking into what happened in Afghanistan. Mm. I mean, I'm just interested in someone who's been on both sides mm. of the fence. Mm. How can we encourage a culture within mm. government that is as responsible as the one which you're encouraging among journalists? Look, I, I wouldn't want to comment on the Operation Burnham thing, and I, and I, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of places I wouldn't want to go, and there's inquiries, and I'm an amateur stepping in the middle of it. Wouldn't you know? Wouldn't be wise, but. You know, in our earlier conversation, you had you'd sort of mentioned some of those blurred lines. So Media Watch, uh, you'd mentioned, I actually haven't read this story, but had, had reported on, uh, you know, a bunch of New Zealand journalists being invited um, to visit the American military in Hawaii and not writing about it. And I'm not, I'm not familiar with that particular story specifically, but, you know, there's always that danger, I think, of blurred lines between journalists and what they cover. You know, to be honest with you, in an age where news organisations are encouraging reporters to become personalities and in some cases even promoting them as celebrities. So, you know, I drive to work every day and uh, I see them on the sides of buses and I see them on billboards. There are lots of examples where that, that line is blurred. In the afterword to your novel, you talk about the Urawera police yeah. raids and mention that the Suppression of Terrorism Act is still on the books yeah. and could be misused. And you also mentioned that journalists have been guilty of amplifying yeah. these things. What, what were your specific concerns there? I really do believe that you don't always realise you might have been doing that or uh, amplifying misinformation until um, sometime after the fact. In No White Lies, I was referencing some of the reporting that occurred in the run-up to the Iraq war in 2003, uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. But there's another example that I think gives pause for reflection, and that's some of the reporting around the 2007 police raids around New Zealand that became known as Operation 8. I reported on those for the Christchurch Press as National Affairs Editor. And within hours, we journos were reporting tra terrorist training camps in the Uruweras, we were using headlines like gorillas in the mist. Later on, police recordings of the alleged terrorists were leaked to the media and widely reported. And despite being ruled inadmissible in court, police eventually uh, attempted to charge those arrested under the previously untested Terrorism Suppression Act. Um, Solicitor General ultimately said, um, ruled that they couldn't do that. Police have since apologised. But I think assisted by us in the media, you could argue that damage was already done. With your novels, do you think people are going to go through them now that they know that you have this position within the New Zealand security establishment and try and discern what your attitudes are to Māori activists, to Islamic, so-called Islamic terrorism? As a New Zealand citizen, um, 
and as a creative person and uh, a former journalist, I, f I figure that we live in a country where we have the right to express ourselves artistically. I get a huge amount of pleasure out of writing stories and creating stories. And to be honest, there's, there's not a, a sensible string that you can find through somebody's life where uh, you're a journalist, uh, you go into uh, intelligence assessment work, and then you go into policy work. And there is a, there's a narrative and a thread through that, which is storytelling. And it's making sense of information that people may or may not do that. I, in fact, I, I find it hard to believe that anyone would find me important it, enough or interesting enough to do that. It didn't come uh, up in the job interview? No, it didn't, but I, I've, uh, I've declared it um, in a range of settings so that I have no conflict of interest. Everybody I know and work for knows uh, that, part of, um, that part of me, which is done in my personal time. I, I go home and when other people might um, watch TV... Uh, you know, I uh, play with the kids, put them to bed, chat with my wife, and then when she goes off and does Pilates or whatever, I go up to my room and, um, and uh, write novels. That was Dan Eaton, who recently took up the job of Director of National Security Policy at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, talking there to Media Watch's Jeremy Rose. As we heard there, Dan is a former National Affairs Editor at The Press, a former foreign correspondent and the author of two spy novels, including the new one we heard about there with a Kiwi journalist at the heart of the story, No White Lies. And there's a longer version of Jeremy's chat with Dan Eaton on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, or you'll find it on the Media Watch section of the RNZ app, or on our podcast feed, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And finally on Media Watch this week, in our final edition for the year, a couple of political performers who proved the media wrong. As we heard earlier, National and its leader Simon Bridges are aggressively targeting the government now with new policy, also in blunt ads on social media direct to the punters. And some of these have recently been criticised as misleading, and two of them were even judged so by the advertising watchdog. But in an interview with the spin-off last week, Simon Bridges denied that his party was playing fast and loose with the facts online. I'm not remotely cynical. I want to be fact-checked. So there's a challenge for the media in election year 2020. But Simon Bridges could also challenge the media to revise some of its own stark claims about him over the last year or more. At this time last year, he was being asked this on Morning Report. I won't be in the spot next year this time. Will you? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I will. But while Guy and Espiner changed jobs at RNZ in 2019, Simon Bridges didn't, defying a chorus of political reporters and pundits who reckoned there was no way he would remain National Party leader for much longer. They called him a dead man walking, especially after each political poll from NewsHub. New Zealand has delivered its verdict on Simon Bridges, and it doesn't get much worse. Under his leadership, National is in a tailspin. And NewsHub also pushed the prospect of Judith Collins taking his job. Mike Hosking, for instance, told his News Talk ZB listeners how the polls would drive that process. The people who support Crush will go, gee, that's good to see her. She'll go from three to five to eight. Then the story becomes when she crosses Simon at nine. Simon's then in trouble. That's when the rumours start. That's when the numbers start getting counted. That's when you've got to spill. Remember where you heard it first. And NewsHub's Patrick Gower once even co-opted Eminem to write off Simon Bridges in a kind of political diss track last year, like this. Simon Bridges is finished. It has been 62 days since NewsHub political editor Tova O'Brien got that excellent scoop on his limousine expenses, and I knew then this was a sophisticated hit. Simon Bridges is busted. 
and broken as a leader. And what it all means is that there is no chance that National can win in 2020. Gower out. However, more recent polls, which, as we know, they take so seriously in the media, say otherwise, with Simon Bridges still in charge. So as 2019 closes, Simon Bridges is featuring in many pundits' list as a politician of the year. Veteran political correspondent John Armstrong, for instance, this week wrote this. It is rare for a leader of the opposition to deliver a performance as adept, effective, capable and authoritative as Bridges is making. And John Armstrong said Simon Bridges has refocused and reoriented the National Party's policy and seen off Judith Collins' bid for the leadership. So when reporters asked what Simon Bridges wanted for Christmas this year, it was Phil Collins he had in mind, not Judith. What would be your dream tune to, to play on a new electronic drum kit? Oh, I just got some sort of Phil Collins in my head, you know, um, maybe in the air tonight. When the political reporters asked Winston Peters what he wanted for Christmas this past week, he replied, a rest from you, classic Winston. And so was his choice of tune when Simon Barnett and Phil Gifford on News Talk ZB asked him to pick one last Wednesday. Winston Peters picked the 80s hit Drop the Pilot because he doesn't share those revised opinions of Simon Bridges' leadership. So, as the Deputy Prime Minister said, this is for Simon Bridges. <laughs> Drop the Pilot... On News Talk ZB with Simon Phil, it's eight minutes away from four. So all smiles there then and what was mostly a friendly end-of-year chit-chat on ZB last Wednesday. But one thing Winston Peters doesn't like is the media asking about his health. Can, can I ask, I don't know if you've ever said this publicly, but are you able to share what, what was actually wrong with you? Uh, uh, my doctor told me not to tell with you guys. <laughs> oh, specifically, specifically us, Winston, was it? You can tell no, us. No, 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 no. Winston Peters insisted he has a summer regime to get me back into tip-top shape, and staying off sweets, he told ZB, was part of that. But tip-top ice cream was part of his political diet back in May, when the local owner Fonterra sold it to the world's third-largest ice cream company called Franeri, which almost spells foreign if you rearrange the letters. And Winston Peters was positively frosty when Mike Hosking asked him this at that time. Yes, but I didn't come on this programme to talk about what we had to eat last night. Well, I just wonder, do you have any ice cream for dessert? No. With that in mind, Winston Peters might just be interested in this week's win for Australia-based ice cream brand Streets, which is also now owned by Tip Top's ultimate offshore owner, mega-corporate Unilever. Streets persuaded the Advertising Standards Authority to overturn a finding that the slogan, Ice Cream Makes You Happy, could be harmful to people's health. The Advertising Standards Authority's appeals board eventually agreed with Street's lawyers this week, who said that the slogan was just puffery, and ice cream, they say, is widely understood to be an occasional food. So Christmas, presumably, can be considered an ice cream occasion, if not for Winston Peters, on his summer regime to be in tip-top shape again. But after dessert, a potential news desert now awaits the news media in the summer break. What wouldn't they give for the unexpected stars of last year's silly season? So do you guys have a message for the country? Where are you guys going? Members of a family of British tourists who have been causing mayhem in the north of the country were heckled and told to go home as they left court in Hamilton this afternoon. If it weren't for our ability to film people on our phones in public, we wouldn't have had, I think, the most entertaining, 
Christmas holiday story I have seen in years. You're a naughty little s. I mean, that was a, an unusual bunch of bogans. Yeah. They, they were extraordinary. We are a respectable family. We are a British family who come here as a Commonwealth country to see New Zealand, see the hobbits and see the mountains. We're hiding at the moment. We don't know what to do. You know, people were t- taking time off work and going down to the McDonald's because they heard rumours that these guys were going to be there. They were celebrities. Yeah, they were celebrities. Gypsy celebrities. Gypsy celebrities. But yeah. they were going down to sort of beat them up. Coverage of the so-called unruly tourists expanded to fill the news void last summer and any tourists from hell who end up on the radar these holidays can also expect to end up in the news. Well, Media Watch is taking a break for Christmas and the New Year, but we'll be back at the end of January 2020. So join us again at the same time next year here on RNZ National.